turn to Luke 18, and I'll tell you uh, where exactly in a moment. But in order to begin today's discussion regarding the events that we know as Palm Sunday, let me tell you about something that happened in 2006, not far from here. And this story takes place about 50 miles west in the area near the Bronx Zoo and the New York Botanical Garden. And it concerns 24-year-old Eric Hernandez, a graduate of the Sacred Heart University here in Fairfield, who subsequently moved to New York City. Hernandez had just completed his usual 4 p.m. to midnight shift at work. And after leaving work, he stopped at the local White Castle to pick up some food. While inside the White Castle, a group of five men began to taunt Hernandez and demanded that, they, that he buy them sodas. Words were exchanged, which quickly escalated to a brawl. The Wendy's manager called 911. Eric stood just over six feet tall. He weighed about 200 pounds, and he was a star running back for Sacred Heart University. The videotapes retrieved from the security cameras at the Wendy's showed that Eric Hernandez fought ferociously, but he was no match for the five thugs. The fight spilled out the door and into the parking lot. It was then that Hernandez pulled out a gun on one of his assailants. And it was at that same instant that police arrived in the parking lot. Hernandez was ordered to drop the gun, but disoriented from taking a beating from five men, he turned in the direction of the officer who was issuing the command. It was at that time that 19-year veteran Alfredo Toro shot three times. Responding ambulance workers treating Eric Hernandez discovered the bullets had pierced major arteries and he was losing blood rapidly. As they were loading him into the ambulance, the police searched him for identification. And that's when they found his police badge. Officer Toro crumpled on the ground in the Wendy's parking lot, realizing that he had just shot one of his own. Eric Hernandez died in the hospital, a victim of mistaken identity. Today, we will consider Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem and we will be witness to the most tragic case of mistaken identity the world has ever known. And that is because when the people of Israel did not recognize the truth of Jesus' identity, they took the life of the one who had come to save them. The people of Israel had been looking for a Messiah for many centuries. And they were expecting a specific kind of Messiah. They were looking for a king like David. 
a conquering king who would throw off the shackles of Roman oppression that they had long endured from those invaders. But as we stand with the followers of Jesus, placing our palms on the ground to welcome the coming king, we will see that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem, and when he comes, the people discover that Jesus was not what they were expecting. The people were expecting a military conqueror, but Christ came to be a different kind of conqueror. Not a conqueror of armies, but of hearts. He came to free people, but not to free Israel from the Romans. He came to, pe- he came to set free all who would believe from the shackles of sin and death, from the prison of hopelessness and despair. Now, one day Jesus will come again, and he will restore Israel to its glory, a glory far beyond anything it had ever known. But on this, his first coming, he came to bring an infinitely more important restoration. He came to offer all who would believe reconciliation with the Heavenly Father. And with this reconciliation, invite the faithful to enter the gates of God's eternal kingdom. As Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on that day, the day that we call Palm Sunday, many had projected onto him their expectations. And so many of the people who were shouting his praises, who glorified at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, believed. That is, they behaved in such a way that revealed they were not interested in Jesus for who he was. They were interested in Jesus for who they expected him to be. But as we know, it didn't take long for these same people who projected onto Jesus their expectations to grow disappointed and disillusioned when they realized that Jesus did not come to be the conqueror that they wanted, they were quick to abandon him, to turn against him, and to hand him over to the very people, the Romans, who they hated. As we come to the text today that describes the people's reaction to Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, I believe that the key point that we are to gain from the text today is that it is essential that we embrace Jesus for who he is rather than insist he must be who we want him to be. As Jesus came into Jerusalem, he knew the reason for his coming. He knew why he was now coming into Jerusalem. His appointed time had now come. His mission ordained for him since before the beginning of the world had now come. Let's look, please, at Luke 18, the 31st verse. Luke 18, 31. Then he, Jesus, 
took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. And so as Jesus prepares for his entry into Jerusalem, as he prepares for the week that's following, there will be no surprises for him. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. Everything will occur exactly according to the divine plan. Let's go, please, to Luke 19. Luke 19, next chapter. Luke 19 and the 30th verse. And as they are on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus gives instructions to two of his disciples, and he says this at verse 30. Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. Again, we see there are no surprises for Jesus. He peers into the future. He sees this animal. He sees its owner, and he provides his disciples with the necessary response to procure that animal. And as he does so, he is not only peering into the future, he is simultaneously fulfilling ancient prophecy that foretold his arrival in Jerusalem, even what it would look like. Let's consult the scripture that has been reprinted for us and inserted into today's bulletin. This passage that's reprinted for you is from the prophet Zechariah. We're referencing Zechariah 9.9, and we'll be using the NIV translation. That's what you have reprinted there. And here's what it says in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Zion. Of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The people were familiar with this prophecy from Zechariah. Everybody knew the prophecies from the Old Testament, especially those prophecies that foretold the coming of their Messiah. And these words foretold who this would be. And so when they saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem, he came into town on a young colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's what they said. Here is our king. This is the one the prophet foretold. But there was a problem in the way they applied Zechariah's prophecy. Don't miss this. Here's the problem. The people saw what they wanted to see. 
They were selective in seeing what they wanted to see. They focused on Zechariah's words that speak of salvation as when he says, See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation. And we know what kind of salvation the people wanted. They wanted to be saved from the oppression of the Romans. And that's completely understandable. A foreign oppressor comes into your country, virtually enslaves your whole people. You want to be saved from that. And so we know the kind of king the people wanted. We've heard it many times. They wanted a conquering king, a king like David. They wanted a king who would win the peace by the sword. They wanted the Romans expelled, and they wanted Israel to be restored to its former glory. And here's the thing. He did come to bring glory, but he didn't come to bring a worldly, temporary, political glory. He came to bring an eternal, spiritual glory. In other words, Jesus came to bring all who would believe into heavenly glory. He would usher in those who believe into his kingdom. But many were blinded by their expectations. They were looking for what they wanted to see, but missed the reality of what was right before them. Here's a case of mistaken identity. What they overlooked was a key part of the prophecy from Zechariah, the part that identified what kind of king this would be and thus what kind of salvation he would bring. Look again at what Zechariah says. He says, see, your king comes to you. He's righteous. He has salvation. And how does he come? Gentle and riding on a donkey. You see, the people overlooked or they completely ignored the part of the prophecy that said that he would come to them gentle. Does a conquering king come gentle? No. It's also important for us to remember that it was universally understood at this time and in this culture that when a king came riding into a city or a town and riding on a donkey, that was the universal symbol of peace. When a king came riding into a town on a donkey, that was the symbol of peace. But if the king came riding in on a horse, that was the symbol of war. In a modern equivalent, we could draw a modern equivalent, the difference would be whether... General Eisenhower came riding into a town on the top of a tank, powerful tank, or he came riding into town on a lowly golf cart. That's the difference between a donkey and a horse, a tank or a golf cart. One meant peace, the other meant war. Jesus came riding in on a donkey, the symbol of peace. It should have been obvious that as Jesus rode into Jerusalem a donkey, that he was not coming for the purpose of war, but for peace. And what's more, he was coming into Jerusalem to offer a spiritual peace, a peace that only he could offer, because only he could bring peace with God. 
You see, our sin nature puts us at war with God. The Bible says we are at enmity with God. By our sin, we push him away. We make ourselves at war with him. But Jesus came to bring peace, peace with God, a peace that he would win not by the blood of soldiers fighting against Rome, but by whose blood? His own blood shed for us on a cross. Let's return, please, to Luke 19 and go to verse 35. We continue a little farther in the account. Then they, meaning the disciples, brought him, the colt, to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Today we would say that they were given Jesus the red carpet treatment. By this time, Jesus was well known throughout the region, throughout Israel. Many had seen or heard his miracles, and consequently, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he was given a welcome that was fit for a king. And in addition to the cloaks that were spread before him, the other gospel writers tell us that people cut branches and laid those branches before him. The gospel writer John tells us specifically that palms were put down before Jesus. Give him the red carpet treatment, the treatment that was fit for a king. Let's look, please, at verse 37. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent, the downward slope of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus is now descending this steep hill that goes down the Mount of Olives toward the valley below. On the other side of the valley is the elevated plateau upon which sits the walled city of Jerusalem. Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives, and at the bottom of the valley he'll come through the gates that enter into Jerusalem. As Jesus traveled along the road leading down the Mount of Olives, many had heard in advance that he was coming, their king was coming, and so they lined the roads. People were standing on the steep hill among the olive trees, in the Garden of Olives. Some had climbed up on the stone walls that lined this road. And we can envision then a great parade. As some were marching on the road, they're coming with Jesus, their king, their conquering king. Oh, it's going to be a great day. They were just itching for a fight. These people couldn't contain themselves with excitement. They were celebrating the arrival of their Messiah and all they expected him to do. Luke tells us in 37 that the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. These mighty works, or miracles, that's what they are, these mighty works, these miracles included the news that Jesus could raise the dead to life 
as he had recently done yet again for his friend Lazarus. This Jesus could take a loaf of bread and a few fish and feed thousands of people. Who better to be their king? He could feed the armies of Israel. And if his soldiers fell in battle, he could raise them back to life. Who better to lead an army against the Romans? Who better to fulfill their expectations? And so they cried out at verse 38, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's consider now who is in this crowd. Luke describes them as the whole multitude of disciples. And we can deduce that there are at least four kinds of people in this crowd. And what we will discover is that although many in the crowd thought they were his disciples, most would not be his true disciples because he did not meet their expectations. The first group are his genuine disciples, especially his apostles, with the clear exception of Judas, of course. They were convinced that Jesus is Lord. When Matthew tells us that Jesus walked on the water and stilled the storm, he tells us, Matthew tells us, that those who were in the boat with Jesus worshipped him and said, truly you are the Son of God. The people heard the authority of his teaching. I mean, the apostles heard the authority of his teaching. And the apostles, along with Peter, could say, Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And as we know, if there were any lingering questions among the apostles at this point, every doubt would be removed for them when they saw and touched the resurrected Christ. But it was not only the eleven who were convinced that Jesus is Lord. A second group of genuine disciples was composed of those who were not among the apostles and yet had seen the deep compassion of Jesus, who had seen him perform his many miracles, who had seen him free people from the bondage of Satan as he performed countless exorcisms. They recognized in him the unmistakable evidence that he did in fact come in the name of the Lord. And they were willing to accept him for who he is rather than what they expected him to be. But there's a third group that is marching in this parade. And by far, this is the largest group whose interest in Jesus is conditional. These conditional disciples were not Jesus' true disciples. They essentially said, Jesus, as long as you give me what I want, as long as you do for me what I need, as long as you meet my expectations, then I will follow you. 
But anything that doesn't measure up to my expectations, I'm on my way. They're laying their cloaks. They're laying their branches because he's the man of the hour. He's the one who's going to meet their expectations. But it is this same group who, when faced with the disappointment that Jesus would not live up to their expectations, the moment they saw him arrested, rather than lifting up a sword, they were ready to turn on him. They were the first ones who screamed, crucify him. While the third group is conditional, there's a fourth group in the crowd, and they are outright antagonistic for Jesus. This fourth group is explicitly described at verse 39. Let's look there, please. At 39, we read this. And some of the Pharisees, there's those Pharisees again, some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You see, they find all these claims, all these accolades about Jesus, they find them offensive. They are offended by all this talk about Jesus. And so they want his followers silenced. And it's no different today, is it? Those who are offended by Jesus and the truth that he brings want any talk of him silenced. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the Pharisees of the... I'm sorry. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the praises, that the praises of the people are warranted. They are right to praise him as king because he is indeed the king of creation. He's the Lord of heaven and earth and everything that's in it. Although even his followers, including the 11, did not fully understand his mission, not yet, and they would not until after his resurrection, They were right to praise him and to praise him as the coming king. Look, please, at verse 40. But he answered and said to them, the Pharisees, I tell you that if these people should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And so Jesus employs a bit of hyperbole here, a bit of an exaggeration to highlight a point. He says that if his followers didn't praise him, the very stones laying on the side of the road would. Jesus is saying that these inanimate objects, these rocks, are better able to recognize the significance of what's happening than the hardened hearts of the Pharisees and all who oppose him. The Pharisees are denser than the rocks. The rocks are more spiritually sensitive than the Pharisees and all who oppose him. These Pharisees, representative of all who oppose Christ, stand in ignorance, demonstrating that rocks know more about what's going on than they do. And so the situation that the Pharisees represent cannot be more tragic especially as we witness the next scene. Generally, when the triumphal entry account is preached on this day, on Palm Sunday, it is generally here that preachers end about the importance of praising Jesus 
And of course we should. But I would like to go a little farther into the text because while we have heard the good news of Christ's triumphal entry, we cannot ignore the bad news. The good news is that Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem marks the beginning of the Passion Week. And it's good news because by the end of this week, he will have completed his mission to give his life such that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the good news. By his resurrection, we are given the definitive evidence that all who believe in him shall also be raised to eternal life. But as he arrives on this Palm Sunday, along with this good news, it's also clear that there's bad news. As Jesus approaches the city, the crowds are charged with a level of excitement and anticipation that we can scarcely imagine. The people are singing Jesus' praises. They're worshiping God as they approach the Temple Mount. And there in the midst of this celebration, in the middle of all this excitement, Jesus is overwhelmed with grief. See the contrast. The people are excited. They're beside themselves with enthusiasm. Jesus is filled with grief. Go please to verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. There are only two times in Scripture where Jesus weeps. Once when he came to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and when he wept over his friend, we can be sure that his grief was deep and sincere, even though he knew that he could raise his friend from the dead. But here, as he overlooks Jerusalem, there is no doubt that the depth of his grief is much more profound. And here's why. He is not just weeping over a city. He is weeping over an entire nation. And not just this nation, but over the souls of every nation, every generation of people who do not embrace him as Lord. Who because they want a savior of their own, expect- their own expectations, who will measure up to their needs, who has to be a savior that will be the savior that they want rather than who he is, many will refuse to receive him as Lord. And because they will refuse to receive him as Lord, will never know peace, a lasting peace, a peace that only Jesus can give. Look at what Jesus says in 42. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We can hear the grief. We can hear the sorrow in Jesus' words. If only you had known. If only you had known. If only you had known what you passed up. In effect, Jesus is saying, your eyes are so focused on the present. Your eyes are so focused on what you want. What you want in the present. What you want temporarily. That you've blinded yourself to all that Jesus can offer eternally. You're passing up an opportunity 
a brief and fleeting moment to have the most precious gift you could possibly have, and that is peace with God. Jesus has come as the, the one and only mediator between God and man. He came to remove that wall, that wall that we erected by our sin, that wall of enmity, that wall that says, God, keep away. But Jesus came to pull down that wall through forgiveness, by the shedding of his own blood, by his, by his sacrifice on the cross. And for those who believe in him, he brings restoration, reconciliation. He brings a relationship with God. But for those who resist Jesus, because he does not meet our expectations, we can see how deeply it hurts his heart. Jesus weeps. He weeps for the souls of countless millions, generation after generation. Jesus was fully aware that his own countrymen would soon deliver him up to the Sanhedrin and then to the Romans. Why did they deliver him up? Because they wanted peace. They wanted glory. But without faith in Jesus Christ, they could have neither peace nor glory. Not in this world, and even more tragically, they would not have it in the next. And so Jesus now describes a judgment that would come upon Israel. Let's look, please, at 43. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your salvation. I'm sorry, you did not know the time of your visitation. We see further why Jesus' heart is filled with sorrow. They had long awaited their Messiah. Now he was there. And they, they, could not, they would not recognize him. There were some, there were some individuals or remnant within Israel who did embrace him, who responded to the, to the call. But as a nation, they rejected him. And so Jesus spells out the judgment that Israel had invited upon itself. He gives them the bad news of their, of their own demise. The temple, Jerusalem, even the nation of Israel would be destroyed. And we know this occurred exactly as Jesus foretold. In 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the temple such that not one stone was left on another. Jerusalem was burned. And for the most part, Israel was done as a nation after 70 A.D., just as Jesus foretold. And Israel would not exist for nearly 2,000 years, not until by God's miraculous power, Israel was reconstituted as a nation in 1948. Now mark this, never before in the history of the world had a country fallen and then been reconstituted. 
That could only happen by the power of God. And for those who have eyes to see, it is obvious this is in preparation for the second coming of Christ. And at that coming, Jesus will judge the whole world, the living and the dead. But here in Luke, Jesus makes it absolutely clear the reason for the judgment on Jerusalem. It is stated at the very end of verse 44, because, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, some translations have the Greek as, you did not recognize the time of God's coming. Visitation is the more literal translation, and it's helpful because it it emphasizes the sense of urgency, this word visitation. And the reason I say that is because Christ's first coming was technically a brief visit. It was a visitation. Israel had just a brief window of time, a brief window of opportunity to decide whether they would receive Jesus for who he is or turn him away because he did not live up to their expectations. Listen, in a similar way, each and every person here and who we know has a very brief opportunity to respond to Jesus Christ. And the reason I say brief for the simple fact, we're not promised a day tomorrow. The time is short. There may be someone here today whose time of decision is this moment, this very day. We've got to each decide whether we are going to let him into our heart or turn him away. It is possible to sit in church week after week, year after year, and not take the opportunity to truly receive him. And please don't think this is a small matter. The Lord of heaven and earth, he weeps, he grieves for every soul that does not respond to his offer of peace and everlasting life. Has anybody ever here made a decision in your past that you regret? I know I have. And that decision can be traced to one moment in time, and guess what? You can never return to that moment. Is there anybody here who regrets not making a decision that could have changed your life? That came to a single moment. You cannot return to that moment. And so here's the point. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is no guarantee that that offer may ever come again. This may be the only moment that you will ever have to receive Jesus Christ so that you can know true peace and everlasting life. Do not regret passing up this moment of opportunity. Because if you do, Jesus weeps at that prospect. Lift up the gates of your hearts and let the King of glory come in. If you will, you will discover That Jesus Christ in your life is infinitely greater than anything you would ever expect. Lord, I pray that on this Palm Sunday, we would come before you with great thanksgiving for all that you are and all that you have done 
including giving your life for us. Lord, if there is one here whose heart has not yet been given to you, I pray that this would be the day that they would respond to your call of grace, that they would indeed repent and believe. Amen.